Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at theschoolofchrist.org. This is Grace. This is part one of the series, not the first message in the series. There's an introduction, so if you missed that, I encourage you to go to the website at theschoolofchrist.org and uh, look this series up and make sure you listen to the introduction because we are doing a series of messages on law versus grace in part one of this message. We introduced the series last time. Now we're in part one. And I want to share with you the risks and rewards, the risks of law and the rewards of grace. And uh, this is still kind of an introductory message because last time I ran out of time and I did not share the complete thing. So uh, if you missed that, it'll be easy to get caught up. Plus, we'll do a quick review uh, this evening as well. So uh, we'll repeat it as often as necessary until the message finds a home in our hearts. And that's the purpose of all good teaching, I think. Uh, So here we are, Law versus Grace, Part 1, Risks and Rewards. We will talk about Moses versus Jesus. We started a conversation last time along those lines, and we will continue along those lines this time as well. Moses versus Jesus, we'll add to that discussion. And we'll talk about the risks of law and then the rewards of grace. Again, we are just getting into the beginning of this series. So if you are joining us for the first time, this is a great time uh, to get in and immerse yourself in this subject because it is such a controversial issue for many people. And it's not that they consciously necessarily go out and say, I want to be in bondage to the law. They think that they are serving God. They think that they are pleasing God uh, by obeying the law, the commandments, the Old Testament uh, mitzvot, 613 commandments altogether, way more than 10, by the way. The extreme form of this believes that you have to do these things in order to be saved. And uh, once people realize that extremity is uh, too far to one side, they will quickly correct it and say, well, I, I don't believe that following the law is going to save me, but I believe that following the law pleases God. And invariably... What that leads to is them teaching that if you want to please God, you must follow the law as well. And, um, you know, it, it sounds really spiritual. It actually sounds biblical and scriptural. But as we will see, there are risks associated with that line of thought. And um, so we'll talk about the risks of law and the risks of grace in this message this evening. 
But let's, uh, let's go back to the scripture that we opened the series up with. And for all I know, we may go to this scripture every single time because it illustrates very succinctly and very simply the difference between law and grace. John chapter 1, verse 14, this is not something that I am making up or creating a false dichotomy, but it is scripture that delineates a difference between law and grace and gives us enough examples that we can see clearly the difference between law and grace. And then it's up to us to decide which we will allow ourselves to be governed by, how we will walk, what our relationship of God will be based upon, either based on law or based on grace, and it cannot be based on both. That is a big, big distinction. You cannot walk with God and please God on the basis of law and grace. It is one or the other. And in fact, what we will discover as we go through the series is that you cannot please God according to the law. Even the people to whom the law was given could not please God according to the law, which is precisely why Jesus became a man, dwelt among us. The word became flesh. And in John 1, 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth. Everyone say grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So let's talk about law and grace by looking at it through the lens of Moses versus Jesus. And we'll just... Um, quickly review some of the points we made last time, or the main two or three points. The first is that there are two paths, two potentials, two possibilities, however you want to characterize it, presented to us in Scripture. And we can have either potential or either possibility that we want, but we cannot have both. And here are the two options, the two possibilities, Moses or Jesus law or grace, religion or relationship. This is what scripture is teaching here. The law was given through Moses, but the law was not sufficient. And therefore, God in his infinite wisdom and mercy and grace gave us a revelation that is greater than the revelation that came through Moses. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And you can have either one that you want, but you cannot have both. And if you believe that you can have both, we'll show you in this series 
in Scripture how the early believers thought that they could have both until they discovered that they had to make a choice between Moses or Jesus. They also had to choose between law or grace. And they also had to choose between religion or relationship. And I'll suggest to you, and I have said to you, that it's the same choice you and I have to make, and we can have either one that we want, but we cannot have both. As I said, this is not a new problem, and that's the second point. This is not a new problem. It's an old problem. Jesus, the disciples, the early Jewish believers, and the early Gentile believers, all of them were conflicted and ran into conflict over their obligations to law and the freedom of grace and how to reconcile between those two. And I'm saying that Christians today remain conflicted as well. Now, when I say Jesus was conflicted, I don't mean that he wasn't sure. I mean that Jesus himself was a contradiction to law. I'll show you some examples of that. So I'll, I'll show you some more examples of it this evening. We covered um, a big one last time. Jesus was not conflicted in the sense that he wasn't too sure if he should obey the law or if he should represent grace and truth. He knew precisely <laughs> who he was and that he represented grace and truth. And he also had a very clear understanding of what God said versus what Moses said. He had a very clear understanding of the law of God versus the traditions of men and how the traditions of men tended to wrap themselves around the law of God so that at some point the traditions of men nullified the word of God and those traditions and teachings and commandments of men became more important than the commandments of God. So he was very discerning in that sense, but I'm saying that created conflict everywhere he went. Who gave him all of the problems? Not the sinners, not the prostitutes, not the Romans. The people he had all the problems with were the religious Jews who boasted that they were children of Abraham and disciples of Moses. And then we can trace that problem through the book of Acts and through the early believers. First, the early Jewish believers, and then the early Gentile believers, and then how they were all conflicted. And some said the Jewish, the Jewish Christians should not be preaching Jesus to the Gentiles. Others said, well, certainly we can preach Jesus to the Gentiles, but we need to teach them the law of Moses in addition to the gospel of Jesus. And so this created all kinds of conflict and all kinds of controversy. And what I love about Scripture is it does not gloss over those conflicts, but it records them. And how those early believers reconciled that conflict. Now, some did not. 
Others did, and I'm saying that's the opportunity that you and I have. Just as they had the same opportunity, they could do either one. They could continue to be disciples of Moses, or they could be disciples of Jesus. They could continue to follow the law to the best of their ability, or they could base their relationship with God on grace. They could continue in the religion, or they could embrace the relationship that Jesus offered. Christians today have the same choice, and they also have the same conflict, especially those who are in certain denominations of the institutional church, some more than others. Um, But even after we come out of institutional churchianity, we still carry what I call the residue of religion. I still have some residue of religion clinging to me some 20 years after I have come out of the institutional church. The residue of religion. Thoughts and habits and assumptions and perceptions not based on grace, not based on who I am in Jesus, but based on law, based on religion, based on the traditions of men, based on a misguided understanding of what law and grace is all about, based on a misguided sense of duty and obligation to do things that God has not commanded us to do. So I'm saying this is not a new problem, but fortunately, Scripture reveals both the problem and the solution, and that's what we'll look at in this series as it progresses. Now, the the big thing that we discussed previously in the introduction, and this is the thing that is going to help us, either, either you intuitively embrace this and you say, yes, that's correct, and I, I don't. I don't have all the answers, uh, but I can accept this much truth and then see where the truth takes me. And if, if that's as far as you can go for now, that's fine. But here's what I think the first thing we have to establish. In a spiritual authority contest, a hypothetical spiritual authority contest between the law of the prophets and the Son of God, who do you think should win in a spiritual authority contest? Well, it's not so hypothetical at all because we have an example in Luke chapter 9 on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus went up into a high mountain with his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And it says that his clothing became bright and white. The glory of God filled him and and surrounded where they were, and suddenly Moses and Elijah were there speaking with Jesus. And this is kind of a prophetic vision. I mean, it actually happened, but it's a prophetic vision in the sense that it represents the law and the prophets, and then Christ, the mediator of a new covenant, Christ representing grace and truth, and Moses representing law, Elijah representing the prophets. And in this divine vision, Peter sees this and says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build for you three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, 
and one for Elijah. And it said he did not know what he was speaking. He didn't know what he was talking about. And his natural instinct was to revert to some kind of a religious obligation to build something. Most religious people feel like they have to build something, build a church, build a cathedral, build a temple, build a synagogue, build a mosque, build a shrine, build an altar, build a family life center, build a gymnasium. <laughs> we have to take this these religious feelings and manifest them somehow in a, in a building, in a construction project. And so Peter, not knowing what he was talking about, that was his first religious inclination. It's let's memorialize this. Let's build three tabernacles, one to honor Jesus, one to honor Moses, and one to honor Elijah. In other words, let's put them all on the same level. We've got to honor the law. We've got to honor the prophets. And Jesus, the Son of God, will honor him as well. But let us build three tabernacles, Lord, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then a voice from heaven, God the Father, spoke and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Put away your religious sensibilities. Put away your desire to keep everybody equal, to put Moses and Elijah on the same level as my son. Because in a contest between the law of the prophets and the Son of God, Christ must have preeminence. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And the implication, in case you missed it, is don't listen to Moses. Don't listen to Elijah. Not because Moses and Elijah are bad people. Not because they are in error. But first and foremost, because Christ must have preeminence, Christ is the perfect revelation of God. So why not listen to Moses and Elijah compared to Christ? Because Jesus is the perfect revelation of God. It says that we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It, scripture says that Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Moses spoke to God face to face, but Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Elijah heard from God and spoke messages on behalf of God and did many signs and wonders in the name of God, but Jesus, as the Son, has preeminence over anything Moses said and did, over anything Elijah said and did. And so in a spiritual authority contest, no matter what Moses is saying and no matter what Elijah is saying, Jesus is the perfect representation, the perfect revelation and all that is imperfect and incomplete must bow in submission to Jesus, the Son of God. That includes the Old Testament. It's not that the Old Testament is wrong or in error. It's just incomplete. It's imperfect. And it reflects 
more on the people writing and interacting and struggling and trying to understand and receive and discern what God is saying and doing. And they wrote it down and they shared it and it was fine for that season. But it's imperfect. It's incomplete. Only in the sun do we see perfection. Only in the sun do we see completeness. So however wonderful it was, the revelation of Moses and the words of Elijah, however great the law and the prophets may be, however great that Old Testament, that Old Covenant was, if it were perfect, Scripture says, there would be no need for a new covenant. And it is Christ, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who says, I'm making a new covenant with you. Take and drink this cup. This cup represents the blood of a new covenant I'm making with you. And actually, we'll discover as we look through the law and we look through the old covenant, we will see embedded within that covenant embedded within Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, is a provision and a prophecy that says, this is not going to go on forever, but I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to send another prophet like Moses, but you better listen to what he says or, you're, or you will be cut off. So even within that old covenant, there was the understanding, or at least there was the seed of what would be a new covenant. Maybe they didn't understand, but it was certainly revealed that the law was not forever. The law was incomplete. The law was imperfect. Mostly because the people were incomplete and imperfect. <laughs> Not so much the law as it was the inability of people as they were to follow that law and obey that law. And I would suggest to you that the, the same problem exists today, which is precisely why we are not saved by law, but we are saved by the grace and truth that is revealed through Jesus Christ. But in a spiritual authority contest, grace and truth must overrule the law and the prophets. So when people, for example, want to argue about keeping the Sabbath day, keep this principle in mind that grace and truth overrule law and prophets. It just does. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son. God says, listen to him. You're not a disciple of Moses. You're not a disciple of Elijah. You are a disciple of Jesus. If you are born again and saved, if you are a Christian, What makes you a Christian, what makes you 
a follower of Christ is the fact that you are his disciple. Now, that's a good thing because it means grace and truth overrules law and prophets. New Testament overrules Old Testament. And there are some contradictions between the two. If you think the whole thing is just harmonious, it's not. There are some contradictions. And that's why scripture lays it out for us. John, in his introduction of John 1, when he says that the law was given through Moses, and we saw examples of people claiming to follow the law of Moses, claiming to be disciples of Moses, and yet they're trying to stone people and trying to kill people and trying to destroy Jesus and destroy his disciples, persecuting the early ecclesia. These are disciples of Moses. So that there's a serious problem here. Jesus says that you can recognize the tree by the fruit it produces. Wisdom is justified by the children it produces. And you see what following Moses does to people, what following the law does to people. It turns them into religious hypocrites. It turns them into zealots. It turns them into people who are willing to destroy others who don't believe and behave as they say they should believe and behave. God just sweeps all of that aside and he said, This, behold, this is my beloved son. Hear him, see him, follow him. Do what he says. Whatever he says, that is what you do. And I think for a lot of people, uh, they have not made that utter decision as of yet. They want to put Moses on the same level as Jesus. They want to put the Old Testament on the same level as the New Testament. And we don't have to denigrate the Old Testament. I'm not denigrating the Old Testament. All scripture is profitable. All of it is useful. But as we said last time, all of it is not equally applicable. Some things that God instructed Moses, some things that Moses instructed Israel, don't apply to you and to me. And to say that it does just because it's within the Bible is to show a lack of understanding and a lack of maturity. Actually, in most cases, it just uh, betrays the fact that you are mimicking and parroting and repeating without understanding just what you've been taught. That's all. The pastor said so. The church said so. The denomination said so. And so you say so. But you've never really considered these things and investigated them for yourself. Well, that's the purpose of this Bible study. Grace and truth overrule law and prophets. Jesus, the son, overrules Moses and Elijah. So if Jesus says build three tabernacles, you build three tabernacles. If Jesus doesn't say anything, you don't do anything. <laughs> That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Whatever the master says, that's what we do. Okay. Now there are other, as I said, other examples of law versus grace in scripture. And when we're, we're talking about the preeminence of Christ over Moses and over Elijah, it's interesting 
that Moses himself was submitted to Christ. First of all, we see that they are completely uh, in harmony there on the mountain of transfiguration. But the point is that they know in part, they see in part, and then when they are there communing with Jesus, they see and understand everything in its fullness because they see everything fulfilled in him. But Moses foresaw what God would do. Moses understood that he was not the savior of the world, but he perceived that God would send someone like him to be a prophet and to lead the people. And he, he wasn't talking about Joshua. Joshua was not a prophet. He was the leader. He's the one who took Moses' place, but Joshua was not a prophet. Well, Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, Peter quotes from Deuteronomy 18. Remember, he is speaking to religious Jews. He is speaking to disciples of Moses. What would you say to disciples of Moses to persuade them that they should become disciples of Jesus? Here's what Peter said. By inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Quoting from Deuteronomy 18, Peter says in Acts 3.22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So see what Moses is doing here. He's telling them, God is going to raise up for you a prophet like me. And whatever he says to you, that's what you need to do. And here's the warning. Moses is always having to use threats and warnings to keep people in line. The biggest, uh, the biggest, shortcoming of the old covenant is they didn't have the Holy Spirit. That's just, that's a huge shortcoming. When you don't have the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of grace, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of love, producing the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, meekness, self-control, when you, don't, when you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, you don't have the government of the Holy Spirit, you're at a severe disadvantage, and everyone in the Old Covenant suffered with that disadvantage. But the Spirit could not be given because Christ had not been glorified. Christ had not been glorified because the Word had not become flesh. There's a time and a season for this, and so the law was temporary. The Old Covenant was temporary. And Moses understood this. It was a band-aid at best to show people how they ought to live, but didn't give them the power to live as they ought. It showed them how they ought to live, but didn't give them the power to live as they ought. And Moses understood this. And when you're, you're trying to keep 
a million or so people in line and trying to keep them from going back to Egypt again. You've got to give them a lot of threats. <laughs> That's what a lot of that Old Testament is. If you don't obey God's voice and if you don't do all of these things, you're going to be cursed and all of these diseases will cling to you and you're going to be defeated. And uh, it's a lot of warnings, serious stuff. But Moses understood this much that God was going to raise up another prophet like me, he says, from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Now, is that not just uh, what we heard the father say? This is my beloved son, hear him. And this is what Moses is saying. Another prophet like me, him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And Peter says that prophet is Jesus. So he, he's trying to persuade disciples of Moses why this should now be disciples of Jesus. And some 3,000 people heard this message. They understood it. They got it. And they said, yes, we want to follow Jesus. Now, it wasn't not long after that, another 5,000. So thousands of people are saying, yes, we want to follow Jesus. But they're still wrapped up in this religion. They're still wrapped up in the law. They're still one foot in as a disciple of Jesus, one foot as a disciple of Moses. And that would continue for a while. But at some point, it's going to become obvious that you cannot have the best of both worlds. And we'll trace that as we go through the book of Acts from the perspective of law versus grace. But right here in Acts chapter 3, Peter is revealing Moses' perception that God was going to raise up another prophet. And Peter says, this is that prophet. And if you don't hear him, you will be utterly destroyed from among the people. And that is precisely what happened to the nation of Israel in A.D. 70. So Moses was submitted to Christ. Now we saw how Jesus contradicted the law. Not always. Uh, sometimes he contradicted the traditions of men which he says nullify the word of God. Your traditions nullify the word of God, and he kept the word of God. He kept the commandments of God. But he did do it out of some religious obligation to the law. He did it out of a relationship based on love. And that's why he was perfectly pleasing to the Lord, to, to his father. But when it came down to brass tacks, so to speak, Jesus obeyed God and disobeyed Moses, if that's what it came down to. And we saw the prime example of that, John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. And they, they put Jesus on the spot publicly. Here's a woman caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. Now, for those of you listening to me who believe that the law still applies today and that the old covenant is just as important as the new covenant, or I should say just as applicable, 
When's the last time you stoned somebody for adultery? Oh, so you don't keep that part of it. I should hope not. But yet you want to pick and choose other things that you will keep. Well, we'll see in this series that is impossible. It's all or nothing. You either keep all the law or you break all the law. <laughs> and so here's the quandary that they put Jesus in. Moses in the law commanded us that adulterers should be stoned. But what do you say, Jesus? And what did Jesus say? He that is without sin among you, cast the first stone. If any of you claim to be sinless, go ahead and stone her. And the only one who could claim to be sinless was Jesus. All the rest ran away. And he says, where are your accusers? Is there no one who condemns you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And I'm telling you, that is against the law of Moses. Jesus disobeyed Moses in that instant. He disobeyed the law in that instant. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's not part of the law. It's not. What's it a part of? Grace and truth. This is grace and truth. And then right after that, he gives an invitation. If you will follow me, you will not walk in the darkness, but you will have the light of life. He gives them the invitation. You can, you can continue to follow Moses and the law and go down the path of death. Or you can follow me and have the light of of life. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Hallelujah. So in this instance, Jesus obeyed God. And in order to obey God, he had to disobey Moses. And that was perfectly, perfectly acceptable. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased that he has enough spiritual discernment. <laughs> to be able to disobey Moses when necessary, to be able to, to discern the heart and mind of God. Well, of course, because he is the son of God. But Jesus obeyed God and he disobeyed Moses. And here's another distinction here. Another conflict, and I find this fascinating, actually, Matthew chapter 19 and verse 8. They had come to him because Jesus was teaching that you should not divorce. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That's the ideal. And that's what he is teaching. And they said, now, wait a minute, Jesus, Moses in the law said, if we wanted to have get a divorce, if a man wanted to put away his wife, why all he had to do was write her a certificate of divorce. So the law permits us, the law allows us to divorce our wives. So what's wrong with that? Why are you 
teaching us to do something that is beyond what the law requires. Well, that's what Jesus was always doing, wasn't he? This is how he fulfilled the spirit of the law. It's not just about don't commit adultery. It's don't look at a woman to lust after her. It's not about simply about don't kill. It's about don't hate. Love your neighbor and even love your enemies. So in that sense, Jesus is going beyond the letter of the law and he is fulfilling the spirit of the law. Well, here Jesus puts a restriction on them. Again, going beyond what the law says. And they said, now Moses allowed it. How come you don't allow it? Or why do you teach it this way? And Jesus said something very interesting to them. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And he tells them how it was in the beginning. One man, one woman, and they leave their mother and father, and they're joined together, and the two become one flesh. And that's how it was from the beginning. But it's because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, why would... Why would Moses permit them to divorce their wives if that was not the way it was from the, from the beginning? Well, look at it from the wife's perspective. Look at it from the perspective of the wife trapped in a marriage with a man who doesn't love her and doesn't support her and doesn't care for her and doesn't want her to be around. In that case, divorce is a blessing. You don't want to be shackled to somebody like that and Moses is trying to keep the peace he wants them to have strong families and have strong family ties and bonds he's trying to keep the nation together but trying to force someone or not allowing someone to put away their wife when they are not in love with them anymore that's going to lead to all kinds of chaos and problems and it's misery for the wife so in that case because of the hardness of your hearts jesus says moses permitted you but it doesn't mean god commanded it it doesn't mean god said it's okay it's not god's best it's not god's ideal yes even today, it is a reality for most people. Most marriages end in divorce. I'm not here, and neither is Jesus here, to beat people over the head and make them feel guilty and condemned for the fact that their marriage ended in divorce. Simply saying, using divorce as an example, Moses allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts. What does that mean? It means that divorce is not God's best. Again, it's a band-aid. Things go wrong, things happen, and most marriages end in divorce. That's not God's will. It's not God's best. 
but it's because of the hardness of our hearts that there's a provision that when two people are detrimental to one another and no longer supportive of one another, as they should be in a marriage, and especially when one is abusing the other, the other person should not have that obligation or that sense of spiritual uh, responsibility to that relationship anymore. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, this was God's intention. But here's the point. It's not about marriage and divorce. Here's the point. Moses commanded something that Jesus says wasn't God's heart, but was only a concession, a band-aid. Not because of God's command, but because of the hardness of your heart, this was permitted. Now, this raises an interesting question relative to grace and law, law and grace. What else did Moses command or permit because of the hardness of their hearts that, was, that did not represent God's highest and best? That's a deficiency, isn't it? It means the law is not perfect. It means that Moses permitted things that God didn't necessarily want or desire, but Moses permitted them. And just because Moses permitted it doesn't mean that it's right or that uh, you are beyond reproach. It just means that Moses permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. What other law and commands and rituals and traditions and customs and teachings of men are permitted because of the hardness of our hearts, not because God wants it that way, but because this is a concession. It's a band-aid. It's a temporary solution. It shows once again that the law by itself is not sufficient. We need the, the grace and the truth that comes through Jesus Christ to be able to see God's perfect intention for marriage and for the grace and truth and mercy for those who have failed in their marriage, whether through their own fault or through no fault of their own. But it simply reflects that the law was imperfect because the law was dealing with people who were not perfect. Incidentally, so does grace. But grace approaches it a completely different way <laughs> than the law. Here's another example in Acts chapter 10. And this is that rooftop vision of Peter. And he's there praying, and he becomes hungry as he's there on the roof. And then Peter saw like a great sheet 
being let down from heaven with all kinds of animals, and they were unclean. It was unlawful for Jews to eat these animals. I'm sure there were some pigs in there. Pork. <laughs> but all kinds of unclean things. And a voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You're hungry. Go get something to eat. Here you are. But Peter said, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And why not? Because I'm, I'm a good Jew. We have law in place. And the law says what we can and cannot eat. No seafood, no pork, among other things. The law is very specific about what we can and cannot eat. So not so, Lord, even if a voice from heaven tells me, kill and eat. Not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. So you see here, Peter is still hanging on to Moses a little bit, isn't he? Well, he's a disciple of Jesus. And he's converting disciples of Moses to become disciples of Jesus. And yet here is the residue of religion clinging to Peter, just as that residue of religion clings to you and to me. And Peter didn't even realize it, just as you and I very often do not realize. And here's... Peter arguing with the Lord, not so, Lord, I have never eaten anything. I'm a good Jew. I only eat kosher foods approved by the law of Moses. And see, God's trying to teach him something. He's wanting Peter to go to the home of a Gentile and to share the good news of Jesus with this non-Jewish household. And when Peter does this, God is going to fill that house with his spirit. And those people are going to be saved and they're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But here's the point, And here's why this matters to you and to me. If Peter can't even get past this little thing about eating certain foods, how is he going to be persuaded to go to the home of someone who's not even Jewish? <laughs> Right. This is the point. This is this is how God is getting to Peter. If Peter won't even obey the Lord in the matter of eating and drinking, how is Peter going to obey the Lord in the matter of going to the home of a Gentile? Which is also against the law or is against at least the traditions of Judaism not to associate with Gentiles. So God starts with something very small, the matter of eating something that is unclean. The law says very clearly in the law of Moses, what you can and can't have to eat. Peter says, not so, Lord, I have never eaten anything common or, un or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again the second time and said, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. In other words, God is greater than the law of Moses. God is greater than the law. Sometimes we want to exalt the law above God. Sometimes we want to exalt scripture above God. But here is a direct contradiction. 
You might think this is the devil giving Peter this vision. <laughs> because it's so contradictory to scripture. It's contradicting Moses. It's contradicting the Bible. It's contradicting the Old Testament. Well, yeah, but that's just the beginning. Because going to preach Jesus to the Gentiles, that's a huge contradiction. But if you can't get straight on the matter of something as simple as what you can and cannot eat, how in the world are you going to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth? So this is how God begins to deal with Peter. And this happens three times because Peter is stubborn. Peter's got a lot of the residue of religion clinging to his person. And so this, this repeated itself three times. And then, after that, here comes the messengers from Cornelius. And the Spirit says to Peter, go with them and don't doubt anything because I have sent them. Peter goes, knowing full well that it is against the law of Moses for him to do what he is doing. And what do you know? He goes, God blesses, while he is Still speaking, it says, the Holy Spirit came upon them and filled them. And what happened when Peter returned? Oh, then they jumped all over his case. You have gone to eat and to associate with a Gentile. You've gone into a non-Jewish household. How dare you, Peter? Explain yourself. Defend yourself. And Peter tells the whole story from the beginning. <laughs> I don't think we fully appreciate this controversy between law and grace. It is all throughout the book of Acts, but it's useful to study it and look at it because we go through those same controversies, those same controversies of religion, of law versus grace. And so it's necessary, it's important that we look at these things, that we study them, and that we trace the history of this through Scripture and see how the early ecclesia dealt with it. And that's the goal of this study. And again, I am all out of time. I wanted to talk about the risks of law, and I wanted to talk about the rewards of grace, but we will do so next time. So let's summarize. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The difference between these two is the difference between law and grace, legalism and love, fear and freedom, misery and mercy, hypocrisy and holiness, religion and relationship. Uh, the risks of approaching God through the law are many. The rewards are also many, and we'll discuss those next time and explore some more differences between law and grace. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at theschoolofchrist.org.